everybody, it's Rich. Welcome, or welcome back, to the Access Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel, where you'll find our complete Sunday experience with music, as well as great content for kids and students. Visit accesschurch.com to keep up with everything going on around here at Access, and subscribe to our email list. We'll send you helpful suggestions each week designed to help you make friends, grow in faith, and live with purpose. Most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. The other day, I was uh, stopped at a gas station and I was going inside the store to buy something and a man was coming out of the gas station and he was wearing a hat. And um, I always like to see what people are wearing on their shirts or their hats, whatever, you know, you try to guess a few things like, what does this tell me about this individual? And he's wearing a hat and I was a little surprised. The hat said on it, I like to go out on my boat for hours at a time and drink large quantities of ice cold beer. That's a lot. On, actually, this is what he had on his hat. It actually said this. Same thing, right? So just for fun this morning, um, I thought we would just kind of go through some brands. And I want you, this is a little play along exercise. I want you to play along with me. And um, so now you have to be nice is the only thing because these people could be seated near you. Okay, so you have to be nice, but I just want you to say out loud uh, what you think when you are behind someone in traffic and they've got this sticker on their car or, um, you know, you see this. Go ahead. Say it out loud. Okay, good. You guys are really sharp at this. All right. What about the next one? What do you think? You see this on a car? You see this on a hat? What do you think? What's it tell you about the person? No, okay, nerd. See, nerd's a nice word. If you're a nerd, you embrace that word. So he's not being mean. All right. What about this next one? What's this tell you about the person? What comes to your mind? What do you think? Fun. All right. Let's go to the mountains. Let's get away. All right. What about this next one? Here are the nerds. Now the nerds showed up. Yeah. All right. How about this next one? Oh, there's a little delay there. Come on. If you're a Creekside fan, we need to hear it. Okay. Good, good, good. All right. What's this next one tell you? All right. All right. What about this next one? Anybody? One fan? Thank you for the Barracudas. They're kind of new on the scene. They're working their way up. They'll, they'll get there. They'll, they'll be big before long. Not big like Nice, but big someday. All right, what about this next one? What's it tell you? So construction, all right. Somebody who, like, somebody who knows how to fix things. I think I am not qualified to wear this brand. I know that for sure. All right, what about this next one? What does it tell you about the person? They got money to burn. <laughs> All right, what about this next one? They got even more money to burn. All right, what about this next one? Next one. There we go. National cheerleading champions, right? Fifth year national champions. No other Barch and Bears fans in the room. There was a day when we used to be. Super excited about Bartram. All right, well, the reason that we get into all this, you can take that off there. The reason that we get into all these brands, the reason that I'm talking about this today is because the question that I want to ask for you is I think a question that uh, we maybe don't ask often enough because I, I don't know, you know, I tried to find a good picture all week. I was looking for one of these cars in traffic. You ever pull up behind somebody at a red light and they've got like 18 stickers on the back and you think, wow, that person has so much to say. 
And um, there actually was a study. I thought this was fascinating. There was a study on road rage and they tried to correlate like what, now again, correlation is not causation, but still it can be interesting. They tried to correlate who are the people most likely to be involved in road rage incidents? And they looked at like the brand of the automobile. They looked at the style of the automobile, you know, little cars, big cars, like all the different things. Age of the people. Do you know what the number one thing that correlated between road rage incident? Yeah, the number of stickers on the back of the car. So when you see like one of those cars with like 18 stickers on the back, just sort of like, you know, back off a little bit. Not sure what is going to happen there. But I always think it's interesting when somebody puts all these stickers on the back, because I think that it's very much the way that we often live our lives. We think that we can represent like a lot of different things in life. And, and it brings me to this question today, a question that we're going to ponder a little bit this morning. And the question is this, if your life is a commercial, if you are a brand, if your life is a commercial, what are you advertising? What are you advertising? Like, what do people think of when they think of you? And um, one of the ways that I've kind of, I've been pondering this question for years, actually. And um, one of the things that I've decided, I don't know, if, again, correlation, causation, but um, I notice like what people send me, like in my DMs on Instagram or whatever. And it's almost always like somebody that is water skiing or barefooting and doing some kind of crazy stunt. And everybody's like, Rich, like that's what comes to mind. They, they think, okay, I'm going to send this to Rich. You, you know, and you, you come across something in your feed and you're like, oh, I'm going to share that with somebody. And when you choose to share that with someone, that tells you a little bit about kind of the category that you have them in. And you should think for a minute, like, hmm, what do people send me? Like, what category am I in in someone else's mind? Because I think that we mistakenly believe that we can reside in many, many, many different categories in people's minds. And so that's why we're like, you know, we're not afraid to fly the flag politically. We're not afraid to fly the flag for our sports teams. We're not afraid to fly the flag for, you know, our kids' activities, whatever. You end up with all these stickers on the back of your car. And the reality is that um, you don't actually get to represent 17 or 18 different brands. When people think of you, they probably think, about one thing, maybe two. And it's worth thinking about, like what is it that you want people to think about when they think about your life? All right, so while you're thinking about that, quick review. I'm so glad you're here today. We are in week two of a series called Investigating Jesus. Uh, who, how we know, and why we follow. And this, this is so important to us because we are gonna go where the facts lead us over the next six weeks as we move toward Easter. And we're looking at the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, the reason that Jesus of Nazareth... I can't say that, is so interesting, honestly, is because we have to back up a step and even ask ourselves the question like, how do we know about Jesus of Nazareth? Like, why would anyone go to the bother of recording the events of the life of a Mediterranean day laborer, uh, someone who was a peasant, someone who never traveled more than 100 miles from their home, someone who uh, wasn't a figure ever with any kind of power, um, what is it about this individual when we don't even have records of Caesar who lived at that time, Tiberius, who, who was the ruler of the entire known world at the time? We don't even have an account of his life, but we have multiple accounts of the life of Jesus. What is it about the life of Jesus that makes it so special that it would be recorded? And perhaps if you're not familiar with the Bible, 
You may not understand that the Bible is not like a spiritual book, okay? If you were to compare the Bible to, say, other um, religious literature that comes from other world religions, you would find that most of the other world religions, what they would consider to be their spiritual book is a book full of spiritual insights that have been handed down by someone who was given those spiritual insights in private. Okay, so you take like the Quran. The Quran has 114 chapters where Muhammad was revealed uh, these spiritual truths by Allah when he was taken on a winged horse to ride up into the heavens and to experience Allah in a way that no one else ever saw or witnessed. And then he came back and he dictated these. And then we have the Quran, but it's one person's very private experience with the divine. And that's the way that most spiritual literature is handed down. But this is not what we have with the account of the life of Jesus. Jesus lived his life in public. And what we have was witnessed by hundreds and hundreds of people. And these recordings of the life of Jesus, they were not written hundreds of years later, as maybe you were taught in college, that's been long ago debunked. What we have are records that were written within years, just a few years for some of these records, definitely within about 35 years of the life of Jesus. We're going to look today at the book of Luke, probably written about 25 years after the life of Jesus. And so the question, you didn't have to jump there, but thank you, Celia. The question today is, um, are, are these reliable accounts of the life of Jesus? Is any one of these a reliable account? If just Matthew or Mark or Luke, or John, not even all four of them. You don't have to believe every word of the entire Bible. I'm not saying you shouldn't. Hear me clearly on this. I'm just saying you don't have to believe every word of the entire Bible to believe that Jesus is a historical person who lived and died and was seen living again after his crucifixion. This is game-changing. This is why 2,000 years later, we still date our calendar by the year that Jesus was born. This is why his life matters so much. And this perhaps sheds just a little bit of light on why we would have these records of this Galilean day laborer who really, except for one really important event at the end of his life, really um, was, was not that remarkable. And so we're going to look today specifically at the book of Luke. Now, I challenged you guys over um, last week, I want you to start reading through the book of Luke with me, okay? And so um, my math on this is that if you read for about five minutes a day, and you can start now, and if maybe five and a half minutes a day if you start right now, but you can start now, you can catch up to the rest of us, but if you read for just five minutes a day, turn to your neighbor and say, you have five minutes, you have five minutes. You all have five minutes. We have five minutes, okay? Let's be honest. We have five minutes a day that we can read through the book of Luke. And if you will spend five minutes a day reading in the book of Luke, then by the time we meet here for Easter, and we're talking about this incredible event that really did make Jesus a remarkable figure for all of history, you'll be like, I, I know the story. Like I've been reading along in the book of Luke. It'll be so cool. And you'll be like, I promise you, if you read through the book of Luke five minutes a day, you will show up here week after week and you'll start to say to me in the parking lot or in the hallway, you'll be like, 
I never knew this story. There's this story in there that I never read before. There's really cool stuff in there. We won't get to hit on all of it in the next six weeks, but you should read all of it because it's really great stuff. Now, if you don't have a Bible in your pocket right now, then here's how you can get one really quick. Here's a QR code. Just point your camera at that right now. You get the Bible on your phone. And there are websites also, but I really like this one Bible app put out for free by Life Church. It's got all kinds of different translations in there. And um, if you are one of the people in the room that uh, use an Android, we've got this for you as well. We'll also pray for you for a moment. Ask God to help us forgive you for turning all of our group texts green. And, um, but we want you to go ahead, take your phone out, take a picture of that. If you've got the Bible on your phone, go ahead and take your phone out. Uh, some of you actually might have this thing called a Bible that you brought with you, that's even cooler, like a physical paper Bible. But I want you to follow along as we read because um, this is such great stuff. And as you're gonna see, Luke is writing with a very specific purpose in mind. And he tells us right up front, like, hey, this is my agenda. This is why I'm writing this book. And so we're gonna, I'm not gonna review all of last week. Uh, you should go back, watch last week's sermon so you get a little bit of context for where we're going. But I am gonna just really quick recap what we talked about last week, which is right here at the beginning, he says, many, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things, of the events that took place. Why many? This is in an era where food was scarce and papyrus was expensive and ink was expensive and, and most lives were not documented. People didn't keep diaries back then. Writing was a really big deal. So if you chose to write about a specific person and if multiple people chose to record the events of the life of Jesus, we have to ask the question, why? What about this one life made him so special that so many people documented? Again, this is not spiritual literature. This is not someone writing down, you know, deep thoughts about the universe. This is someone recording what many hundreds of eyewitnesses saw take place. And so we're going to see in a minute, Luke actually challenges people, you and I, but most importantly, the audience to which he wrote he challenges them to fact check him because the people who were reading the book of Luke when he first wrote it, they were eyewitnesses to the events and they had the ability to come back and say, no, 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 this is not how it happened. This was written while all the people who witnessed these events were still alive. And so he says, many have undertaken to draw up an account. Nope, go back, sorry. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. This is so important. And servants of the word. With this in mind, okay? With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated. Now, Luke was a physician. So he was a scientist of the day. He was a man of science. He was a man of facts. And he carefully investigated these things. He was not one of Jesus' followers. He was not a disciple of Jesus. He comes into the story a little bit later. But we know from reading the book of Luke and from reading his second book, the book of Acts, we know that Luke actually personally knew Peter, who was Jesus' most famous disciple. He personally knew James, who was the brother of Jesus. He interviewed, we think, Mary, the mother of Jesus. He traveled with the apostle Paul on two of his missionary journeys all around the Mediterranean basin. So we know that Luke was like up close and personal with these people who were the eyewitnesses of the account. 
So he carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And he says, I too decided to write an orderly account, which literally means in this case, an ordered account, a chronological account. Probably there were a lot of people at that point who had come to faith. We find out that just within weeks after Jesus' resurrection and Jesus going back to heaven, within weeks of that happening, thousands of people became believers in Jesus. Not just believing that Jesus was the Son of God, but believing in, which means I'm putting my hope, my faith, my trust, I'm putting everything in what Jesus has done for me. And so thousands of people have become followers of Jesus, or what they said then, the way they referred to it was followers of the way. Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So like, <laughs> the way means I'm following Jesus. Jesus was a rabbi at the day. And, and a disciple was someone, this was not language that was unique to Jesus. There were many, many rabbis who would have disciples. In fact, you should know that like whatever you think of being a superstar today, if you think like the NBA would be it for you or the NFL would be it for you, whatever like the ultimate success would be, whatever the top rung of the ladder would be in your world, that's what rabbis were in the Jewish first century. I know that seems a little bit weird to us. They're like, hmm, okay, must have been a lot of like limited options. But the rabbis were a really big deal. And this is because every Jewish little boy would learn to memorize the scriptures from the time that they were probably four or five years old. And in fact, the time that they finished what would probably be around like third, fourth grade for us, they would have memorized, this is crazy, but they would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, like memorized. So studying God's word was a really, really big deal. And then the ones who were really good at it, they got to be selected around the age of say middle school. They got to be selected to be a follower or a disciple of a rabbi. And so a rabbi would actually select you and say, I think you've got what it takes. I believe in you. I think that you could follow me and that you could fill my shoes and that someday you could do what I do. And that was a really high honor to be selected. And so then you would be a disciple. You would follow after a rabbi. And what it literally meant in those days was that you would follow so closely in the footsteps of your rabbi that your garments would be covered in the dust from his sandals. It was really, we say the word disciple, but a better word would be in our context today would probably be the word apprentice. Like it's not just believe what I believe or know what I know. It's you can do what I do. If you're a plumber and you have an apprentice, if you're an electrician and you have an apprentice, it's not enough that somebody knows theoretically. It, they have to be able to do the thing that you're so good at doing. And so when Jesus came along and he selected people to be his followers or his disciples, he was saying, and this is kind of weird because all the time we talk about Jesus, we talk about, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. Jesus was actually saying to these disciples when he said, follow me, he was actually saying, I believe in you. I believe in you. I believe that you could be like me, that you could do the things that I do, that you could live out this faith. So, he says, so now he comes along and he says, uh, we'll back up a little bit, Celia, sorry. 
um, carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus was probably his sponsor. Back then, if you took time off to write, you needed somebody who was going to pay your bills. Theophilus was another believer, also Greek, also coming into the story a little bit late. And they're saying, man, we've heard all these different stories about Jesus. We need someone to put it in a chronological order so we can understand the whole story in its context. And so that is what Luke sets out to do. So that, and this is important, whenever you see the word so that, you should always circle them because so that, it's like the word because, right? Because someone told me once is the most important word a leader can use because that is the why, right? Simon Sinek. The why behind it matters. This is the why, so that you may know, not believe, but you may know with certainty the things that you have been taught. So you don't have to wonder about these things. So today we're going to look at the life of John the Baptizer. Okay, John the Baptizer. Now you've probably heard John the Baptist, and that gets a little confusing for some people because they're like cheering for Team Baptist and everything. They're like, was there also like Peter the Presbyterian? And like, what did all the, the teams look like in Jesus' day? That's not how it was. He wasn't Baptist. He was just, he was a baptizer. It literally would mean John the Washing Man. Like he would like wash you. That's what if you did the most literal translation, would be John the Washing Man. So John the, Baptist, the Baptizer, he came along before Jesus. He was Jesus' cousin and he kind of lays the groundwork for Jesus. And so we're going to start, as we're moving through the book of Luke, we're going to start by looking at this message today from John the baptizer. Now you should understand, John the baptizer, he is not like a Bible character. This is something we get a little confused about sometimes because the way we're handed a Bible when we're young and um, somebody tells us that this is the Bible, the whole Bible, and you, know, you believe everything, and that's great. I'm not disagreeing with that. Don't hear me wrong. I'm just saying it's, it's a little more nuanced than that. The Bible is actually a whole collection of historical documents, and it's different types of literature. And so if you don't understand the different types of literature and how we should really read and understand the Bible, it might get a little confusing for you sometimes. But this is, the book of Luke is a historical record. And Luke's going to prove to us that it's a historical record in these next words, he says, in the 15th year. Now, if you're writing fiction, you don't do this. If you're writing fiction, you don't give someone the opportunity to fact check you. But by saying it this way, Luke is literally saying to his audience, I know you remember this time. I know you remember those days. Like if I were to say to you right now, you know, 1986, some of you in the room would be like, well, that's ancient history. I think everything was in black and white. The rest of us would say, Class of 86 was the best ever, right? We would immediately know, you know, the Duran Duran song that was on the radio then. We would know like all the best parts about, you know, the Van Halen tour. And, you know, we would maybe get in a debate between, you know, David Lee Roth and Sammy Hagar. And, 19, you know, say 1986 to somebody, it means something because they can put that in a specific place and time. They remember where they were, what they experienced. Well, in the 15th year of the reign, of Tiberius Caesar, Caesar of the whole known world at the time, who, by the way, we don't have an account of his life because it was a big deal to take paper and papyrus or papyrus and pen and to record something. But in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod, the Tetrarch, which is like a mini king, Herod was like the mini king of Galilee and his brother, Philip, was the tetrarch or the mini king of Iturea and Trachonitis. 
and Lysanias, tectarch of Abilene. Okay, he is given us. Now, this is the thing. Normally, when we read through the Bible, we're just sort of like, uh, skim, 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 because this doesn't mean anything to me. Let's get to the good part. But what Luke is saying is, this happened at a specific time and place, and you can check me on this. For all of you who are still alive, who are, or who witnessed these events, or maybe you have a friend or a relative or a neighbor who lived in Judea at the time, and they can check these events. The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now, Zechariah was a priest and John, John the Baptist, was his son. John is not a Bible character. He's a historical character. In fact, real quick, let's jump over to Josephus, who was a historian that came along and wrote about 40, 50 years later, but he was a Jewish historian. He wrote several volumes. One of them is the Antiquities of the Jews. And Josephus writes this. He's talking about something totally different, okay? There's another set of events where Herod, um, he gets in a little bit of a tiff with his father-in-law, who turns out to be an Arab king, and the two of them end up going to battle together, to war, all right? And um, that's not a good situation with your father-in-law, by the way. You don't want to have your armies marching out to war with your in-laws ever. So, but this is recorded later. Um, and that was because, by the way, Herod thought that it would be possible. I just think this is funny that anybody ever think this is even possible to, to quietly divorce his wife. Don't try that. You can't, you, there's no such thing. He quietly divorces his wife. Well, he tries to quietly divorce his wife and he ends up in a war with his father-in-law. Well, jo, um, uh, we have this written down by Josephus, who is a historian, it's not a Christian, not a Jesus follower, but he's a Jewish historian who records this. He says this. He says, now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army, because Herod lost the battle, came from God and was a very just punishment for what he did against John the Baptist. So this is like 50, 60 years later that this is being recorded about this battle that Herod lost. And maybe it's because of what he did, which was that he had John the Baptist beheaded, right? For Herod had him killed. Although he was a good man and had urged the Jews to exert themselves to virtue, both as to justice toward one another and reverence toward God. So this is really cool that Josephus really got like a big part of John the Baptist's message when he comes along is not only is he calling people to repentance toward God, but he's also talking about their virtue toward one another, which really laid the groundwork for the message that Jesus came along to teach, which is it's not enough. Tradition and ritual at the temple is not enough. Living out our faith is broader than that. So the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So people would come from miles around to listen to John and to be baptized. And one day, um, it wasn't just the different, you know, uh, citizens of Galilee and Judea and that area that came to listen to John the Baptist. One day, it was actually the religious leaders. And they came, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were the leaders of the temple. And they came, and John was so excited that they came. John welcomed them with open arms. He says to them, welcome, you brood of vipers. <laughs> That's what John says to them, you brood of vipers. So he doesn't have a super high, you know, at this point, the temple system has really become corrupt. And the high priest at that time was corrupt. And so John is like, man, this system, you have... The system was put in place by God. The system was a good system, but 
men have come along and corrupted this system. And so he calls them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? In other words, something is coming and you are worried about losing your power. And so that's why you are here today. And then he goes on and he challenges the group, challenges everybody there who's listening to him. And he says that this is what it means in Luke chapter three, he says, this is what it means for us to truly be followers of God. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So this is where we go back to the question that we started with. What is the fruit that your life is producing? When you see an apple tree, you know it's an apple tree because it produces apples. You see an orange tree, you know it's an orange tree because it produces oranges, right? And so when you see the fruit on the tree, you know what kind of tree it is. The question for you and I is, what's the fruit of our lives? When people see our lives, what do they say? Oh, that is a, what kind of tree? What does your life represent? What are you known for? What is the brand that you are wearing? If people have to narrow it down to just one thing that they know about you, what is it the one thing that they're thinking about? And and this is basically what John is saying to his audience. He's saying, hey, you want to produce fruit. People need to see on the outside something that's representative of the repentance that's happening on the inside. So produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, This is like this, oh, we have Abraham. We have Abraham. You see, they were Jewish, and so they felt like they were special, which they were, but now they've come to rest on that. They've come to just lean into that and say, well, we have Abraham as our father. So we're good, like we're totally good. And John the Baptist, he comes to them and he says, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. If he was here in our midst today, he might say, God could raise up stones to become Christians. Look, you're not not just in with God because you were born into a certain family. You're not just in with God because you show up at church, right? There used to be a musician back in the 70s and he would say, uh, being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being at McDonald's makes you a cheeseburger. I know, it's cheesy, but you'll remember it. And our faith is a piece of, this is what leads us to being a follower or a disciple of Jesus. But being a follower or a disciple has to do with the doing. And we would say, if we were to take this text and we were to put it in today's words, we might say something like, and and do not say to ourselves, oh, but I'm a Christian. This is what John the Baptist might say to us today. Oh, do not say to yourselves, oh, but I'm a Christian. I prayed a sinner's prayer and I asked Jesus to be my savior. Don't say these things. John the Baptist would say to you and I, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up Christians. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance what people see on the outside, what they know about your life, what you represent as you live and as you love should represent what's happened on the inside. Produce fruit in keeping with what you say you believe and what you claim to believe in. Produce fruit. So, you know, the Jewish people at the time, they were like, hey, you know, we're we're Jewish. So we're good. We're like good with God. And John the Baptist is saying to them, no, 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 no. That's not it. There's more. 
In the same way that you might show up and say, hey, I went to camp, I was a kid, I went to vacation Bible school, I became a Christian, and John the Baptist said, no, 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 that's, that's not the finish line. That's not the finish line, that's just the starting line. That's just where it begins. It begins there, and now we're going to live out our faith by doing. We're going to live out our faith by doing for others. This is the way that we'll be marked. This is, this is our fruit. And by the way, if, if you are someone who's like, you know, I just feel like my faith is kind of, has kind of, you know, just really dwindled over the years. Maybe you're someone who's here today or, or you're watching online because someone shared this message with you and you're thinking, I'm kind of on my way out. I'm kind of moving away from faith. I'm kind of drifting. My faith is sort of, it's just stagnant. Maybe the reason that your faith has become stagnant and then your faith has become lifeless maybe your faith has just altogether died inside of you is because you have not been asking yourself this question that John the Baptist asked his audience. And we have not been asking this question that his audience asked back to him. Because John the Baptist's audience actually asks a really great question. It's a question that every single one of us should be asking today. It's a question that if your faith has started to feel stagnant, then this is the question that will bring your faith back to life. And it's this question here. What should we do then? The crowd asked. What should we do then? What should we do to change the fruit that hangs on the tree of our life so that we live a life that produces fruit that, that broadcasts the same thing on the outside that we say we believe on the inside. And John answers this. John says, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. Wait, wait, that's it? Well, I thought you were going to send us back to the temple. I thought you were going to give us like a religious ritual. And he says, no, just Share. Share, like your parents tried to get you to do when you were three years old. Just share. That's it? Share. If you've got two shirts, you should share with the person who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Food, I mean, food's a big deal in those days. Food does not keep. Food's hard to store. Food doesn't transport well. Food's expensive. You want me to share food? Yeah. That's how people will know your fruit. And then there's, a, there's another group in the crowd. And I think this is interesting. In the New Testament, there's like two categories of sinners that are talked about. There's the regular sinners. And then there's the tax collectors. <laughs> we probably feel the same way today. But there's the regular sinners. And then there's the tax collectors. Now, part of the reason that the tax collectors were so looked down on is they were also Jews. But they had betrayed their fellow Israelites because they had gone to work for the Roman government. And not only were they taking the taxes and sending them to Rome, but they could take as much as they wanted. They could overcharge and they could keep the difference. And this is how many of them were becoming personally wealthy. But some of the tax collectors actually had gathered around to hear John the Baptist. And the tax collectors asked this question, well, what should we do? And John replies this, don't collect any more than you are required to. <laughs> it's that simple. Stop stealing. Share, stop stealing. Like these are basic things, but it is what we do to demonstrate that, that the life that we live isn't all about us. The life that we live is about others. In other words, do what's just, not what you can justify. 
And John the Baptist is saying, what does your life represent? What is the brand? What do people think of when they think of your life? Do they think of someone who takes more than they deserve? Or do they think of someone who gives back and in fact gives more? And then there's another group there. There's a, there's a group of soldiers. Now they were soldiers in the Roman army, but they weren't Roman. They weren't Italian. They were from other nearby countries that Rome had conquered. And Rome would conscript these soldiers and they would pay them to go and enforce Roman law in nearby countries. This is what Rome did kind of all over the Roman Empire. And so they had taken some soldiers from nearby areas, probably other groups of people that at some point Israel had had conflict with. So there's bad blood between these folks to begin with. And now Rome dresses them up in a Roman soldier's outfit and gives them a spear and a sword and gives them authority in Israel to enforce Roman law. So they were not Jewish and they were not loved. And they asked the question, what should we do? They're also gathered around John the Baptist. They said, what should we do? And John says, don't extort money. Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. In other words, as Jesus would say later, treat others the way that you want to be treated. And then he goes on and he paves the way for Jesus who's coming. He paves the way for Jesus who's about to arrive on the scene. And he says this, he says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come and the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He's laying the groundwork for what Jesus is about to teach and what Jesus is about to say. And Jesus is not just going to teach it. He's not just going to say it. Jesus is going to live it because the kingdom that Jesus introduces is this backward, upside down kingdom where the king comes not to reign and to lord it over us, but the king comes to serve. And in fact, the king comes to give his life for his subjects. And Jesus, the king, invites us to do the same. He invites us to be his disciples. He invites us to follow in his footsteps in such a way that our garments are covered in the dust of his sandals, to live, not just to believe, but to live a certain way. And so the whole message of Jesus' life is, is to do something, that you and I are called to do something not just to believe that Jesus was who he said he is, but to believe in, to, to transfer our trust from what Jesus, or from what we've done that's good to what Jesus has done for us. But then Jesus says, this is not the finish line. This is the starting line. You see, it's this interesting dichotomy where Believing in Jesus is free and it will cost you nothing. The gift of salvation, the gift of a relationship with God is absolutely free and it cannot be earned and it cannot be deserved. But, <laughs> but once we have accepted that free gift, then we live out a life, out of gratitude, out of joy, out of relationship with God. Our lives are changed. And from the inside out, we are changed and we live differently. We live in such a way 
that people would look at us and say, oh, they are followers of the way. They're followers of Jesus. So if your life is a commercial, what are you advertising? Another way to ask it is, what version of faith are you advertising? Is it a version of faith that says, hey, you know what? My faith is private, it's personal, it's just between me and God, and I go to church and I do my thing? Or is it this version of faith that John the Baptist talked about and that Jesus lived out where it's every single day of the week? It's what we're known for on Monday at the office and on Tuesday at the HOA meeting. <laughs> That's a hard one. On Wednesday, right, when we're disciplining our kids and on Thursday when our spouse doesn't see things the way that we see that. What does it look like for me to live this out every single day of the week? What, is it, what version of faith am I advertising with my life? If people can only think of one thing about us, what would they think? Would they think Jesus follower, disciple? Guys, this is, I wrestle with this. This isn't just you that feels the weight of this question. I feel this also, right? But the challenge for every one of us is that the people around us, that, that they wouldn't see us as, you know, really no different from them. I mean, when people listen to you in conversation at, at the sidelines of the soccer game or in the neighborhood or whatever, do your worries and concerns, do your hopes and dreams sound just like theirs? Do you sound no different from someone who is not a Jesus follower? What about the prayers that you pray? Are, are they prayers for you and for your family and for your kids? What about the things that you do? What does it mean to live out your life? Because this, this way that we've been called to, this most excellent way that we're part of as a church, it's not a cruise ship. I mean, I love a cruise and I love, you know, everything's already been paid for. And the first time I went on a cruise and I couldn't decide between desserts and they offered to bring me both, I was like, I am never leaving here. Are you kidding? But we've not been called to a Christian life that's like living on a cruise ship. We have been called to a battleship. And that's not just true of us individually. It's true corporately. Like the, this life that we're living in St. John's, this life that we're living in our neighborhoods, this life that we're living in our community and on the sidelines of the sports games and all of the places that life takes us. We are on task. We are on mission to be, this is crazy, Jesus, who was the light of the world. Then Jesus, he turns around and called you the light of the world. He passed that on to you and to me that we're supposed to be the light of the world. So what should we do? What should we do? That's the question to ask this week. Heavenly Father, what should I do? And next week, we're going to continue with part three of investigating Jesus. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to, um, to think about our lives as useful tools for you. And God, it's, it's my hope that together as a church, we would be emptied of ourselves and our own ambitions and our selfish nature. 
and we would be filled with your spirit and that your spirit would cause us to love each other and to love our neighbors in such a way that we would inspire them to follow you, that we would inspire them to also become disciples of Jesus. We ask all this in your name. Amen.